I don't think we should be uh, simply following the American example of going for all-out confrontation with China. I think Britain and other European countries have got to find a way of reducing their strategic dependence on China, but maintaining a functioning economic relationship because we're going to need that for the future. Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. I'm Leo Nascau, and this week it is a pleasure to be joined by Peter Ricketts, one of the United Kingdom's most esteemed diplomats. He has spent over 40 years in the British Civil Service, taking on many of its most important positions, such as Permanent Undersecretary of State and British Ambassador to France. However, this week it's not me asking the questions. Instead, I'll hand over to Moussa Bhatt, the President-elect here at the Society. Moussa will take over running the Society by the end of this June, ending a wonderful 16 months that I have had as part of it. Let's get that transition underway. Musab, over to you. Welcome everyone to this week's edition to our weekly podcasts. Today, you shall have me as your host, Musab, President-elect for Trinity Term and a second-year PPEist at Christchurch. As we are approaching the end of what has been a tumultuous and uncertain term, we have shifted to online platforms to bring you discussion and insight in the respective fields. With its relative success and the future remaining uncertain, we expect to continue our digital presence. I hope you have enjoyed them and take the time to apply to next term's committee, Oxford PPEist or not, with applications now open. This week, the Oxford PPE Society podcast are delighted to host Peter Ricketts, one of Britain's most esteemed diplomats and a life peer in the House of Lords. In a glittering career in the civil service, he has been intensely involved in Britain's security interests and its international relations with key allies, acting as our permanent representative to NATO and the first ever national security advisor. Our episode with Peter will focus on Britain's changing role in the world and current challenges to the prevailing order in the likes of China, America and the future of diplomacy all discussed. To start off the discussion, I was wondering, how do you believe the United Kingdom's long-term diplomatic goals have changed in the recent years, particularly with Brexit? What a fascinating time to have this conversation. What has changed in the last few years has indeed been the decision to leave the EU. I did 40 years as a British diplomat. I joined the year after Britain joined what was then the common market, and I actually retired in 2016, the year that Britain decided to leave the EU. Uh, And that is a fundamental shift in Britain's relationship with Europe and through Europe with the world. So having had 40 years of relative stability in our international relations, suddenly we are pitchforked into a new world uh, outside the EU and a world which is changing fast, particularly given the changes in America. So I would say being an independent country outside our regional grouping is a huge change in our uh, diplomatic position. Where would you see the UK in two years, five years and 10 years time in the global setting? Well, I think in two years, we are still going to be in all the messy process of disengaging from the EU. The idea that as of the 1st of January 2021, there will be a clean past will be the past and we will have a new future is completely misleading because we are so deeply intertwined with the EU in so many areas, legal, political, economic, 
security, social, that it's going to take years to disentangle from that. I'm expecting two to five years of pretty difficult, abrasive discussions continuing with the EU as we find a new equilibrium. I think if you look 10 years ahead, then that's a new political generation. I mean, that's the generation who are at Oxford and Cambridge at the moment coming into senior positions. And I think that British approach then will be very different from what it is now. I think this anger and alienation from Europe, this sense that Britain has a glorious past and should strike out in a very nationalist, um, different, distinctive approach to the world, I think that will have reduced and eroded the pressure of reality. And actually, I think in 10 years' time, we will be looking for ways to rebuild our bridges to our European neighbours. Do you believe around 10 years' time, our relationship uh, with the European Union and Europe in general uh, will be just as strong as it was two or three years ago? Or do you think that because of Brexit, there will be a fissure in between, between the two parties? Well, I think it'll be different, partly because there's no going back for Britain to the sort of membership that we've had up to now, but also because the EU will be different in 10 years, I'm quite sure, uh, under pressure of um, the post-pandemic recovery, uh, all the stresses and strains that will put on all the economies. My own expectation is that Europe is not headed in the direction of more integration, but rather for more diversity, more flexibility among its member states. The idea of one single size fits all, I think, will take a serious knock in the post-pandemic world. For example, the Schengen area, no borders, freedom of movement area, that's already looking different as countries have erected borders because of the pandemic. So I think it'll be a more flexible, more diverse EU. Britain will be able to find a new relationship with that. It won't be full membership, but I think we will become a a closer partner than looks likely for the next five to 10 years. That's interesting to hear. Taking a step away from the European Union, given the recent developments with Huawei, COVID-19 and also Hong Kong, what changes do you think will likely occur for the United Kingdom's relationship with China? I mean, it's a very big question, and I think it's in a way the defining national security issue for the next generation, how to deal with uh, a China which is increasingly dominant economically and with some um, very clear uh, security goals, particularly in Asia, and no appetite to take on leadership of the institutions that the West designed after 1945. On any measure, China is going to be the world's largest economy in the next decade. China will not replace the US as leader uh, in the so-called rules-based international system. China played no part. They operate by very different rules, different concept of human rights, individual liberties, the role of the state. Uh, They don't necessarily want to export that um, uh, approach to the world, but they certainly do want to have a dominant role in Asia with their value systems accepted there. And so that's a real challenge for Britain. On the one hand, uh, we have security interests that we need to protect. We do not want China to dominate um, the next generation of of technology, like 5G telecoms, for example. Um, We don't want China continuing to do what it's doing at the moment, which is uh, stealing intellectual property and taking a very aggressive approach to technological competition. Equally, we will want to be trading with this huge Chinese market and no doubt having investment from China. Britain's economy is going to be very weak after this pandemic, and we will need to grow our way out of 
uh, economic recession. So I don't think we should be uh, simply following the American example of going for all-out confrontation with China. I think Britain and other European countries have got to find a way of reducing their strategic dependence on China, but maintaining a functioning economic relationship, because we're going to need that for the future. It, it is a very big and complex um, issue. And how do you think is the best way to go about striking that balance, especially considering the fragility of the economy post COVID-19? Well, I'm headed for a very difficult patch, China, partly because the British government have quite rightly taken a very tough line on the Hong Kong issue. Uh, and I welcome the offer that they've made to British passport holders in Hong Kong for the right to come to the UK, in the end settle in the UK. But that is going to lead to confrontation with China. Um, it looks like we're set to um, harden our position on any role for Huawei in the next generation of telecoms. So we are set fair for a difficult patch in our relations with China. But I think we have to keep steady nerves and keep our overall national interests in, in view. Chinese also have a national interest in not completely losing uh, their connections with an important market in the UK. I mean, for example, they're in our new nuclear energy uh, for the future. That's a long-term bet we've taken on the British economy. We must get through a very difficult, bumpy period and uh, maintain some kind of working economic relationship with China. I don't minimize the difficulties of that, but I think that's, that's what we should do. That means we're in a rather different position from the US, who seem to be set on an all-out confrontation with China. In regards to Hong Kong specifically, how do you see the Chinese government playing out the upheaval there, especially considering the health challenges already placed in a, a lot of Asia? Well... China under Xi Jinping seems to have decided it will no longer tolerate signs of dissent, different political views, open expression, political views in the street, uh, certainly not in China and also now not in Hong Kong. And so since you know, the last three years or so, we've seen a, a ratcheting up of uh, Chinese uh, mainland pressure in Hong Kong, increasing erosion of one country, two systems. And now with this imposition of a national security law without even going through the Hong Kong Legislative Council, it's another ratchet up in the pressure. The arrival of Chinese state security institutions in Hong Kong is bound to further increase the tension. I am assuming that the Chinese plan is to get this law on the statute books and then to use it as a deterrent to try to force a reduction in the levels of protest, street protests, the freedom of speech in Hong Kong, hoping that they won't have to use its full force, but that it will act as a deterrent. We'll see if that works or not. In any case, I don't think the way the Chinese government are going about this is likely to reduce the level of protest in Hong Kong. And they are running the risk that over time, businesses, uh, individuals will decide that Hong Kong is no longer a place where they want to live and work. So the Chinese side are taking considerable risks here. Let's hope that they pull back from implementing them in as dramatic and aggressive a manner as they could. Going back to the security issues surrounding uh, the UK's relationship with China, whether that be cybersecurity, academic freedom, or the increasing erosion of autonomy and freedom, such as the concentration camps in Xinjiang, how do you think the UK will strike a balance between accept accepting the security issues and maintaining a relationship with China? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a very good question. It's a very difficult balance to strike. But actually, you're right in the sense that diplomacy and foreign relations are all about striking balances, finding the right dosage of calling out China, holding to account where they are doing things which we believe are fundamentally 
against human rights or, or, or wider accepted values, but also not pushing things to the point where the entire relationship breaks down. I think that's a rather difficult balance to strike right now. Let's not kid ourselves that UK acting alone will have much influence. They regard them as issues of internal affairs, of their own national security, with others trying to get China to see that if it wants to be accepted as a major international country with the responsibilities that go with that, it has to abide by some of the essential freedoms and human rights, which are not just Western rights. They are enshrined in the UN Charter accepted by China and all other countries. So I think the, the way to do it is for Britain to act with others. Uh, we've been doing that with Hong Kong, the US, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, uh, put out a joint statement on Hong Kong. An international pressure on China to see that if it wants to be taken seriously as an international power, it has to behave up to the standards of international powers, is probably the best way that Britain can contribute because we can't alone make much difference. Moving on from one superpower to another, the United States um, seems to be in quite a tumultuous period in, in, in its history, not just with the pandemic, but as we can see with the recent protests and riots. And the apparent lack of leadership of the US during the current pandemic is seen by many as only a part of an increasingly isolationist stance in Washington. Other examples include the trade war, the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, and many others. Do you think that this is the case? The answer to your question will be visible in November in the presidential elections because, as you say, for the last three and a half years, America has had a president who was elected as a formidable campaigner, but on a platform of impatience and rejection of the international system that America had played such a big part in building. His approach being that America was losing from being a good and loyal member of the international community. Others were taking advantage of America. It was time to make America uh, strong. And that's what America has been living for the last three and a half years. As you say, pulling from multilateral organizations, using to deal bilaterally uh, with countries to use the full force of American economic power, political power to uh, force countries to make concessions to America. Uh, and that's at the origin of the now very broad scale confrontation going on with China. The question of whether that continues or not is a question that the American voters will decide in November. If they choose Joe Biden instead, uh, there would certainly be a very different tone in American foreign policy. There would be a much greater willingness to work with allies in NATO. And for example, I think America would come back into the Paris climate negotiations but it wouldn't change everything, and it certainly wouldn't change the antagonistic relationship between Washington and Beijing, because the Democrats in America are just as determined to prevent China becoming the dominant economic force of the next generation as the Republicans are. Uh, and so some aspects of US policy, the much greater concentration on Asia, China, uh, a greater uh, wish to see, for example, European countries take more responsibility for their security. I think that would go on. But I think the whole tone in which the American administration approached the world and its allies would change, and it would be possible to do more with them in many areas of multilateral work, and no doubt including whatever changes are needed in the global institutional setup following the pandemic. So we will see how, how much the Trump agenda has been accepted or not by the American electorate. And I think that's the key question probably for international affairs uh, this year.
So if we go down that line and we assume that Trump goes on to win a second election, how far do you think America can pull away from international institutions whilst maintaining dominance on the international arena? I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball and could, could give you a, a clear view of that. Normally, in the second term of a presidency, you see kind of intensification of the policies in the first term. So I don't see any reason to think that if President Trump was re-elected, he would change his fundamental stance. So I think the attack on the multilateral system would continue. America would continue to pursue its interests by bilateral arm-twisting and use of American power rather than through multilateral negotiation. What that would mean for organizations like NATO, I don't know. It does seem that President Trump has come to accept in the last year or so that, that the Europeans are now pulling their weight more in NATO, spending more on defense and so on. But all of this will be up in the air as the world copes with what looks like a very sharp economic recession as a result of the pandemic. That will have implications, of course, for American economic policy as, ever, as much as everyone else. So I think we have to expect a continuation of the current Trump approach to the international order. Of course, by the second term of a second Trump administration, the Republican Party will be beginning to look for its next candidate. You know, there might be some change as if they decide to shift away to a different position. But I think for the first two years after election, things will be very much as they are now, only probably more intense. Following Dominic Raab's recent refusal to criticise Donald Trump's leadership in regards to the current tensions in the US and the Prime Minister's recent rather tame response as well, how far do you think this leniency will last, especially with the growing pressure within the UK public and an acceptance that what is going on is not right? Yes, well, I think you put your finger on one of the most difficult points for British ministers. I'm sure privately people are horrified by what they see on the streets in the US and probably by a lot of the comments from the political leadership. But I think for a senior British minister to go out and criticize the president directly is a very hard thing for them to do. And so they try to avoid doing that directly in public. It's a very, very uncomfortable position for ministers to find themselves in, particularly given a president who is you know, hypersensitive to international criticism. That's part of the problem of being a senior political leader in these times that sometimes there is a very uncomfortable choice between saying what you probably privately and what you think is wise given the wider context. I don't say that they've necessarily got that balance right, but I understand the dilemma they're in. In the case of the president's hypersensitivity, how do you think international diplomacy has changed since his time in office? The president's approach, of course, is a very personal one. And there's sometimes a feeling that there is... President Trump's position, and then there is perhaps a position that the wider administration takes on issues. And it's not always clear that President Trump will see through on things that he says or announces where the administration have been in a different position. So it's become more personalized, clearly. In some areas of policy, I don't think the president takes a great deal of interest, and the administration, the officials can get on with their relationship with other countries. But where the president does take an interest, obviously things become comfortable. See a bit the same tendency towards a more personalization of power in other countries, including the UK. The British government is hyper-concentrated on the personality of Boris Johnson. Uh, that has been a trend, of course, over, over decades. Um, but the time when you could say that a prime minister was primus inter pares in the cabinet, but formally everyone was equal in the cabinet, those are long gone. Now, I think the personalization of power even in parliamentary democracies, is pretty obvious. It was very obvious in a country like France as well, where 
the concentration of power on the person of the president is very strong. Social media, the capacity of a leader to have a direct contact, conversation with voters without the intermediary of government departments and government press offices and the media. I mean, all that increases this trend you can see towards personalization of power at the top. On the, the United States administration, why do you think they are taking the stance that they are taking on the protests themselves? Oh, gosh, I'm not sure I'm in a good position to try and explain that. I'm not, you know, I'm not living in America. I haven't got the full vibe. I think okay. you have to see a lot of it through the prism of the upcoming election. Uh, we're now six months away from the election. Elections polarize in America. America is even more polarized now than I can remember it in the 80s when I was there. And this is just further polarizing, I'm afraid, opinion in America. Some of the statements of political leaders are encouraging that polarization rather than bringing the country together and uniting it. Uh, so, I mean, my explanation, I think, is partly this underlying polarization of politics in the US and partly the looming election, which is just making all that even more intense. In the case of America and its relationship with NATO, you've just spoken. Um, recently, the, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, criticized the lack of strategic political coordination within NATO over the past few years. He argued that NATO, in the case of Syria, had become an ad hoc mechanism. NATO had, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, lost its purpose and needed to be reevaluated. Do you think this is the case? And what would you make of his comments on NATO? When I was a young diplomat, I served in NATO in the 1970s in the Cold War. Uh, and I then served in NATO again as our ambassador, our permanent representative, just after the Iraq war in 2003-4-5. People have always been calling for NATO's role to be reevaluated, certainly ever since the Cold War. As you all know, uh, it was created in 1949 at the outset of the Cold War, really as a vehicle for containment of the Soviet Union and its threat. It survived the end of the Cold War and spent two decades really leading uh, Western interventions in the Balkans, in Afghanistan, and a lot of NATO members, although not NATO itself, in Iraq. And then after the Libya bombing in 2011, people were again asking, okay, that period of Western interference in other countries is over. Now what is NATO for? And of course, then we had President Putin posing a much more direct, aggressive sort of threat to the Western countries. Again, in a way, NATO was back to its original stock in trade of deterring uh, Russian adventurism uh, in Eastern Europe. But that's not a fully satisfactory answer to the very difficult question, what is NATO for now? Certainly, if you are Poland or Estonia, or um, then NATO is very much for deterrence of Russian adventurism. If you live on the southern flank of NATO, if you're Greece or Spain or Portugal, then probably migration across the Mediterranean is the key thing. If you're Turkey, then it's the threat from Kurdish uh, militia in Syria. If you're America, well, you're not really very clear what NATO is for because your security interests are increasingly in Asia. And that's what Macron was referring to, I think, the fact that we have this alliance, which has done 70 years of great work as a military alliance, but at the strategic level, if you put leaders around the table and ask them what is NATO for, you'd get very different answers. And that is uh, not a good thing for an alliance to be strategically disunited, even if it's being an effective military coordinator. And I think his plea was to have a deeper discussion about what allies really want from NATO, what is its purpose and priority. The unstated question, I suppose, was if there is no strategic unity anymore, can NATO survive?
in my argument there is yes nato absolutely should survive in this dangerous world it is the place where the north americans including canada and the europeans can talk together about their security concerns it's very important to britain now we're no longer in the eu it's true that allies have different strategic objectives but if we all share the same basic values then there is still point in us having all our militaries work to a common patterns common norms training together exercising uh, and being ready if necessary to fight together the problem is if the values of the members are also uh, moving apart and for that reason i would worry just as much about turkey's evolution which is not at all in the direction of other western countries uh, as much as america's approach which is I mean, fundamentally our values aren't different but the american focus is more towards asia uh, i would say that nato still does have a purpose but i think explaining to the new generation uh, what is nato for and what is its relevance in the post pandemic world that is a real challenge and i don't think nato has done a very good job at all of explaining itself there is definitely a strategic lack of unipolarity um but how do you think that nato can reorganize itself uh, systemically to make sure that this isn't necessarily a problem in the future because it seems like it's a problem at the moment yes well as i say i think i think there is this underlying unity of values with a question mark over turkey but there is no unity of purpose and ob- objective i mean I, there's no no simple answer to the question part of the answer i think is to is to do more to make sure that nato is relevant to the interests of all its member states and since america is now so focused on asian security in my view nato should be taking more of an interest in asian security countries like australia new zealand japan have worked with nato in afghanistan no nato well ought to be invited more often to nato and nato should talk about the big issues in asian security including threats from china that would make it more relevant to the us and also actually keep the europeans engaged in a, an issue which feels a long way away from most europeans also i think nato needs to do more to communicate its capacities so part of what nato is for is to have the, to be a kind of reserve an ultimate reserve of power for its member states now, the military normally you want them to be in barracks you don't want to be fighting wars but you want them to be ready to go and do whatever is necessary and that can also include you know helping countries you know with crises with floods and famines and pandemics and natural disasters um, it can mean uh, peacekeeping it can mean rescuing hostages it can mean a whole range of things having this reserve of power well trained and ready to go is useful and could be useful in this world of disruptive shocks but nato hasn't done anything to explain to people that that is a capacity they have and nato is there to help it has communication systems it's very effective in the anti cyber world but it's very quiet about all that so i think both we could do more to use nato to talk about the issues that matter to allies and we could do more to explain to the public you know that nato has this so underlying value I see. So you spoke earlier of the threat posed by Russian adventurism. How do you think the United Kingdom is uh, interacting with that threat and how do you see the relationship with Russia in the future especially with Putin seeming to remain in power? The UK has had a leading role in western policy on Russia for many years. In particular, the UK has had a more hard-edged, hard-headed view of Russia ever since the poisoning of Mr Litvinenko in London in 2006 where other countries were 
often prepared to give Mr. Putin the benefit of the doubt and continue to operate with Russia as if it was just any other country. I think since 2006, Britain has been very clear that uh, Russia is prepared to behave recklessly, dangerously. We've also seen the very opaque and murky murder of a number of Russian dissidents in London. That, that has continued. Then we had this Skripal poisoning. And so there's absolutely no illusions in London, I think, about the fact that Russia seems to declare the West an adversary and to be prepared to use you know, the most brutal forms of attack in a short of full military attack against Western countries to pursue what it sees as its interests. On top of that, of course, we've had the cyber uh, attacks, the stealing of data, the sowing of discord through social media and so on. So Russia is in a very truculent, reckless kind of mood towards the West. Um, Britain, I think, has seen that more clearly. Now Britain is no longer in the EU. Um, we can't influence the way the EU look at Russia in the way that we did. But I think we can still uh, work with other friends and allies to make sure people are taking a hard-headed view of the Russian threat. As I say, I don't see it as a direct military threat, but as a threat of coercing, sowing division, subverting, and stealing what they can of, of Western technology and data. And therefore, we need to keep a very vigilant approach to Russia. I'm sure Britain will continue to do that. Britain now has to argue that case from outside the EU rather than as a member. In the case of NATO and identity, um, to what degree, if any, is NATO monitoring the weaponization of memory and the security threat it poses? The crisis of identity, I think, is most alertly seen in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, but is also evident in the NATO member states. I mean, I would say that for most Central and East European countries, they are still feeling you know, what a wonderful moment it was when they were able to escape from the Soviet Union in 1989, uh, that the EU and NATO brought them both stability, but also prosperity that would have been unimaginable as members of the Warsaw Pact. And for many of them, they've made a remarkable transition in the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, yes, of course, there are problems. Yes, of course, a country like Hungary Mr. Orban uh, is trying to impose a rather different set of values than the ones that we would recognize or that NATO would recognize. But I don't really recognize the crisis of identity. I think there's still an awful lot more that brings um, the countries, say, of Western and Eastern Europe together than there is that divides them. I know there are politicians in many countries that are trying to play identity politics. There is a populist resurgence. However, this pandemic has, if anything, been an ultimate test of competence in governing and those countries that have been more inclined to pursue populist campaigning approaches uh, have done less well than the countries that are really competent at governing and I will even include the UK in that because I think the UK government came in as a campaigning government with a quite a strong populist streak um, has not shown itself to advantage in the governing through the pandemic whereas a country like Germany has Moving away from political crises and political discussion, um, I just wanted to know a little bit more about uh, your career in diplomacy. Could you tell us a little bit more about certain insights on what you enjoyed most about your time and how do you think the foreign services changed during, during your time with it? Gosh, yes, those are big questions as well. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that I did 40 years as a, as a diplomat. I joined at the age of 21 straight out of Oxford. I never had a job in that time that I didn't enjoy or find stimulating and fulfilling. I found it the most satisfying profession to work in. Why? Partly because all around the world, very high quality, thoughtful people get involved 
in diplomacy. So colleagues, both in the UK and around the world, tend to be very high quality. And because of the, the issues that we deal with, diplomacy, you know, you're not just making money for some, somebody else or, or a company. Uh, you know, you are trying to solve the most difficult problems in the world and helping to give people a better life. My generation were not always successful, of course, but nonetheless, the world did have a pretty good 40 or 50 years in the decades after the Second World War, and the diplomats were an integral part of that. So the problems we tackled every day, problems of peace and war, problems of stability and international relations, bilateral relations between countries, trying to ease the tensions and promote you know, goodwill and free movement of people and economic benefit. I mean, they are inherently difficult, but uh, ultimately satisfying. So I would encourage anybody thinking of a career in diplomacy, if you're interested in working internationally and working with people, in working with and in other cultures and, and countries and languages, then definitely take it seriously, take a good look at it. My career, I mean, it was totally unplanned. Um, I, I rather drifted into it from Oxford. I wanted to do something connected with the international world. And throughout my career, I tended to accept jobs that were offered me to say yes to things. And I found that my career was always interesting and always kept offering me, offering me bigger jobs and uh, you know, more interesting ones to the point where I was head of the foreign office in a post called the permanent undersecretary for four years. And then I was Britain's first national security advisor, setting that up for David Cameron in 2010. I finished off as ambassador in Paris, which is a dream posting for any diplomat. I can only recommend it for people now. Well, I think it definitely is because in a way, the generation now joining the foreign office or other foreign services in other countries faces the challenge that the generation had in the late 1940s where an old, an old order, a, a, an old way of doing things is passing. The set of institutions, the structures, this rules-based order that was set up in the late 1940s is clearly eroding. I hope it won't be swept away completely, but we're going to have to find new ways of multilateral cooperation post-pandemic, new ways of making sure the world is alerted, is resilient, is prepared for the next disruptive shocks. There are all the old problems of dealing with adversary states and great powers and terrorism and cyber attacks and so on, plus the new challenge of trying to combat global threats like climate change uh, and obviously public health. So there's an enormous agenda for the new generation of diplomats. I think it's just as challenging, perhaps even more than anything I faced in my career. And so I can only say, go for it. And I hope that, you know, that the most talented people of the coming generation will be attracted into the diplomacies of their different countries.